Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, as always, we appreciate you coming on in here. And check out the other things I've got going over. Don't forget uh, at your mom's house, I have After Dark and uh, the Adam and Drew Podcast, of course. And I do a daily streaming show. It's all at drdrew.com. You can get uh, sort of uh, an, what do they call them, blast or announcements at drdrew.tv. And you can see it all there as we do it. Hey, I'm in a clubhouse, too. Sign in over there and uh, Instagram Lives I've been doing. So I'm all over the place trying to... Well, initially this was because of COVID. I was trying to get the message out about what you can do to stay out of the hospital. But I've just kind of kept these things going. We're doing some interesting interviews, including today, Michelle Borba. Michelle's new book is Thrivers, The Surprising Reason Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. Uh, you can go to Michelle with one L, Borba, B-R-B-A dot com, B-O-R-B-A, right. And Twitter, at Michelle Borba, and Instagram, at D-R Michelle Borba. She has authored over 24 books, and uh, they've – she and I have known each other for a long time, making the rounds on various shows where she has been a very important resource. Dr. Borba, welcome. Good to see you. Oh, thank you. Good to see you, too. So I, you've mentioned me you're in the middle of a book tour, so I don't want to stress you out anymore. But I'm, <laughs> thank I'm, you. I'm sure, I'm sure I, I at least have to say, take me through, what's, what am I going to find in Thrivers? What am I going to oh, learn from Thrivers? Oh, God. You know what? I've written a number of books, but I have to tell you, this book has taken me 30 years to write ah. because I knew it had to be really scientific-based, and I think it took me way back when I started looking at, I don't know if you've ever seen this research, but it was profound. It was Emmy Werner's research in the island of Kauai, and she was trying to figure out why some kids struggle and others shine. So she found this huge cohort of kids. A lot of them were faced with enormous poverty, sexual abuse, physical abuse, but she studied the same kids and discovered halfway through it, for some reason, a third of them were bouncing back and making it despite it. Mm. Well, then Ann Mastin's work came in and another guy, Norm Gomensky. All of these researchers said there's something going on here that we're overlooking. And the takeaway I discovered is thrivers are made, not born. It's not locked into your DNA. It's uh, teachable traits. And that's what thrivers is, is resetting the, the notion on parenting that we've got to help our kids get beyond just knowing that they're good in terms of GPA and test scores but have some coping skills that they can handle a very uncertain world right now. So you use the word coping. Is that include or is that a broader term above and beyond what I would sort of call affect regulation? When I think about sure. resiliency, I think about the ability to regulate emotions. And coping is part of that? Would that be accurate? Yes, it is. Yeah. You're right on the mark. Because what I did is I identified that the commonalities of thrivers are seven traits. No kid is going to have all seven, but you've got to figure out where your child is and they're all teachable. So it's the foundation we already know is that confidence level of the kid knows what his strengths and his weaknesses are. Then comes empathy or that ability to get along with somebody. So it's a more we, not me. That took a dive in terms of COVID mm -hmm. and the lonely factors came in. The third one is self-control, which would fit in perfectly to what you just said that ability to regulate and think straight and put a lid on the emotions before that went over the top. Uh, integrity seemed to be very interesting. I, I wasn't expecting that one, but it seems that thrivers know what they stand for. So when push comes to shove, they have that mental ability also to be able to keep on going. Is, is, can I, I just want to drill yeah. – I'm going I'm to go back on all of these, but really quickly on integrity. Does that also – as you say it, I'm thinking, yeah, that is kind of odd that that would be in there. But maybe if it also is a sign of a sense of self, yes. like, a, like a more complete yes. sense of who I am and therefore I live by that. 
Yes, I yeah. know who I am. I yeah. know what I stand for. So when the push comes or the bumps in the road, this kid doesn't have to wiver and waver. He goes, okay, here's what I am. And it takes the stress down to be able to keep on going. Got it. Uh, and curiosity was the one I loved, that these kids have a more open-ended mindset so that when there's a problem, they're open to ideas and possibilities and they're not dumbfounded. They find a way around it. Then comes persevering. I, I think many parents are going, why doesn't the kid have the grit now? And it's like, if you don't have some of these other ones, you're going to tank. And that's what's happening to us all. Mm. The final one is optimism. You have a hopeful outlook so you can keep on going. Uh, you know, the most interesting thing was they kept coming up highly correlated to not only school, peak performance in school, but also life, that they were all teachable. But I also discovered there's a multiplier effect I always thought it was, let's just help the kid learn the self-control or the optimism. But I found if you put any two of those together, it multiplies the outcome. So the kid is far more likely to keep on going. And I don't care which two it is. Any two is better than one. Uh, and as a result, you've got a kid who's going to be able to handle that adversity a little more and keep on thriving or saying, I got this. I, I only count six here. Do we? I think we missed one. Okay. Em- empathy, got- empathy, self-control, integrity, curiosity. No, self self-conf- confidence is number one. Self confidence. I, I slipped right past that. Okay, got it. Uh, it. That would which would mean we're on the same page on that one. It's a self understanding of who I am and what I stand for. So that's similar, similar to integrity. Sort of, similar, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily have a value structure. Yes. It could be that I love I love basketball. Uh, I, uh, I'm really good at, uh, art, but I'm not so good at, at music. It's that awareness of my who, which seems to be from university of Chicago. So critical to helping the kid find their path or their purpose or their flow. And you know what that bits to, while I was doing this and combing the research, I did the best thing I ever did, <laughs> which was interview kids. Mm. And I'd ask a hundred kids, you know, what's going on? I understand you're the most stressed out generation. All of them said, despite just phenomenal IQs and GPAs of 4.0s and the 7.3s, they said they were running on empty Mm. and they didn't have some of these skills. Or at least when I said, so what are your hobbies and interests? They looked at me dumbfounded. Uh Like, what is that? Uh So they weren't able to decompress. And I'm imagining that leads to depression and other things later. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and eating disorders, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, I interviewed a woman recently who made an issue of sort of uh, faith and virtues. Does that figure mm-hmm. into this construct? Yes. And the, the reason for it is Emmy Werner, back to that, that initial research and everybody else joined course and did the same thing. When she looked at the kids and why they had those protective buffers, now, some of those buffers were the ones that you and I would do with kids, how to, how to decompress, how to get the coping involved, how to get more optimistic thinking. But she also discovered there were some ordinary things that made extraordinary differences on the kids' lives. For instance, some of the kids, they used prayer or they had faith and they were able to use that to decompress. Mm. While other kids, they, they used reading or books. And they just curled up into a book and used that problem of the character, uh, like wonder is the top one of kids these days, or outsiders, that they would get into those books and say, that's what I use. It was fascinating how many kids just had, again, what we'd call those things that we may have missed. Again, the hobby. I like to knit. That helps me. But a lot of the children said they don't have any of them. 
I, I want to so dig into some of the psychological aspects of what, what this all means to me. Uh, when when you talk about the prayer, faith, and reading as a as a I, again, I want to be careful with our language. I guess coping strategy would be accurate, right? Coping. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's it seems like those strategies are about getting outside of the self a little bit, getting getting above the self and gaining some objectivity or some something uh, away from whatever the affect state is you're in in the moment. Is that true? Yeah, because that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's what curiosity would do. You're thinking outside yourself and you're trying to get into the shoes. Well, empathy, trying to get into the shoes of someone else. It seems that most of the research said the kids had a strong sense of knowledge who I am. And once they had that, they were able to think beyond it. Where when I look at most of the parenting, it seems like we're really kind of parenting from the outside in. So it's giving the kids all the stuff, 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 because in all fairness to parents, we love our kids desperately. And that's what we've been fed that's going to help them succeed. But it's all about the one-sidedness of the knowledge and what we've kind of forgotten along the way. Have you noticing the whole kid kind of took the wayside? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's the next side of what I sort of am am experiencing here, which is I I think about how these qualities come into existence, the seven – what do we, we have a teachable traits, and and even in the in the construct of them being teachable, you need a relationship with the other, uh, yep. so to speak, psychologically. Right, the, the the other is the figure in all of this, right? And so, is is to me this all dovetails into attachment and holding frames yep. and yep. attunement and all that great stuff that we don't really teach parents how to. Do that to, to to hold a child in a safe frame, or to worse yet, know what to do if a child has been traumatized or abandonment or suboptimally managed, whatever. How do you how do you get them into the frame and hold them so they are open to teachability? Oh boy, you just hit the nail on the head on that one because I, I think what we forget too is that we start diving in and teaching these skills, and without that attachment or the what Emmy Warner back again uh. back to the resilience said. The one commonality besides the protective factors is this kid always has a protective champion Uh, or an anchor uh, or a caring person. And that seems to be the piece that relies, that helps it through. So So that that I've seen that literature in other contexts too, where they say, you know, a single sustained positive relationship outside the home can change outcomes dramatically. Exactly. And if it's not the mom or dad, it could be great Aunt Hattie or the neighbor next door or the coach. But so many of the kids are missing that one piece, and that's the pivotal piece. Beside, then you add that with the protective factors, you've got the balance. How do we? So, so uh, let me try to frame this question in a way that makes sense. I, I guess we could go through how to teach these different things, right? But I, I feel like first we got to help parents understand how to create an environment where kids are open to teachability or I don't know. Maybe I'm not quite saying it right because I I have found when I I go out and give lectures and stuff, parents always want a recipe. They want, give me the recipe. I want to follow a set of rules. And and what I I, I get sort of turned off by recipes myself and I want want them to understand attunement. (laughs) I want to try to explain that. And I've never yep. found a really great way to communicate that, you know what, and it, it's you know things like getting down to the the child's level, making eye contact, spending time, being available, 
being, you know, trying to mindful of what the child is experiencing and reflect that back to them. Mm-hmm. How, how do you go about that, t- teaching that piece? And then we can talk about the seven traits. Well, the first thing I want to do when I was writing Thrivers is I'm right there with you. And so I realized that many parents, uh, in all fairness, again, I think we're going out of touch with who the kid is and we're sort of copying the neighbor next door or putting this prepackaged, here's the framework of where he has to go down the road. And hold on. So and, the- and Gary, I want you really to listen to this because you're he's the parent of a young child. And I want to know if, if we're getting it across to him, A, and if he has any further questions. So go ahead, Michelle. I'm sorry. Okay. So the first step is I encourage parents to open up the book and take a core asset survey of your kid. Just figure out who the child is. Mm. And it's, it's uh, like, what's their learning styles? What are their hobbies? What are their interests? What brings them joy? What are kinds of things that of those seven that you already see could be a strength of your child? Uh, I just did this actually with Dr. Phil, where we had a mom and a daughter who were really not seeing eye to eye at all. And so what we did is we said, you go fill it out for yourself. This was a team. And mom, fill it out of your daughter. Now let's put the two together and see how attuned you are with each other. The fascinating thing is they had missed a lot of who the kid is. And Always, daughter, right? Always. Always. Yeah. Always. And I think that's the first thing. So the, the, the easiest way to do that is take a three-by-five card this week. Be, no, be natural. Don't let your kid know you're doing it. But watch your kid a little closer. Get into their shoes and just start writing down what interests them. What are they excited about? When is this tone of his voice like eager? Because that's your path to take. We counter it too often. And we spend more time fixing the kid as opposed to, you know, just just going with their strengths. As a result, there goes their confidence and it tanks under 5,000 levels. So that's one step of it is going with the who of your kid. And then there's one other thing, and we can overlay that, and then we go back. I think one of the coolest pieces of research, I I think it was Robert Epstein, lay back when, of American Psychological Association. What he did was go through thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of research on what makes a good parent. Mm. And all the 50,000 parenting guides we have out there. And then he came down with, you know, the top 10, but the top two were at the top exactly what you said. Number one. We got to love the kid desperately. We got to respect who they are. And it seems like the real balance is I love you, but there's also some structure of here's what we stand for in this house. So there's a balance. So, and so the second, yeah, let well, me ask on. about that a little bit. Yeah. Is, is it making, making virtues and values explicit in the home? Is that something oh, we're absolutely. missing? Absolutely. Okay. Explicit, implicit. So the child, so once you take a moment, see the simplest thing as a parent can do with my speeches is sit down, take a moment. Now just think and pretend your child is 40. He's grown up and he did fine. Thank you. But what are the values you want to see in your child? What are the two or three things you hope to see in that kid? Okay, write them down because there aren't any right answers. 400 of them have been identified through time. Okay, now you've written them down. Now ask yourself, so when's the last time you talked about those values to your kid? The last time you disciplined your child, when did you weave in why they mattered? Or even better, if your kid had only your behavior to watch today, would he have caught those? It's those 
everyday little moments that we help build integrity. It's not the six o'clock, let's talk about it. Now, it feels like you're talking about more middle to late childhood stuff where we can make those things explicit. Yeah, but but No, we can do it at age four. Well, Gary's got a two-year-old, and I was going to ask if there's anything – Gary, maybe you have the questions. Yeah, no, I mean it's – I, I'm. I think I'm. I'm starting to suspect that age four is sort of where it would start because right now, you know, what's important to your child? Balls. Uh, <laughs> you know, the 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 cat, the kitty. He wants to go pet the kitty, stuff like that. You know, he wants to go play at the park. But well, some of these things, I'm looking at the 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 worksheets for Doctor Borba's book, and some of them are just, I think, a little beyond where he is right this second. But but let me just tell you, there's a lot you can still learn and say. So what I would say is that he what he's interested in is things that are contingent contingent mm. on him throwing a ball petting the cat he's interested in seeing how the world responds to him yeah right and so that's something to encourage and then to reflect see we don't appreciate how much nonverbal shit goes back and forth between us and our kids make sure your face is reflecting what an appreciation not necessarily your internal content of your body but an appreciation for what the child is experiencing and that's the same stuff that Michelle is talking about. It's just a not not verbal, not with words. Am I right, Michelle? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And even two-year-olds, it's like sitting yeah. down on the floor with them and remembering the first skill we can teach a two-year-old. It's my turn and it's your turn. It's my turn and it's your turn. No, let's pet the doggy. Let's be gentle and kind because we're gentle and kind. It's a lot of repetition. But, but, but what's crazy – see, I'm, as a male, I have to really make this all explicit for myself. Michelle <laughs> does something automatic that we as men could really miss. Even when she said, let's go pet the body, body – the dog, rather. Let's go pet the dog. She used verbal prosody. She went, let's go to the body. Her voice went up in a certain zone. <laughs> and our ears actually, when we're children, tune to that prosody yeah. as a mechanism – again, part of the information we use to regulate. Yeah, and I'm lucky that my wife uh, – inherently does a lot of that all women so, women tend to do it automatically we yeah. don't we don't no but i've i'm i i try very hard to mirror that okay I, good you okay, want let's go pet the ditty yeah right? yeah let's yeah come on. okay be yeah. gentle we're gentle we're nice yeah. to the kitty we're, yeah. we're gentle Just, the prosody is yeah. very meaningful so yeah. okay good michelle's well, smiling <laughs> but even so you know what else we do for two-year-olds the study at yale we talk feelings yeah we talk feelings and we show them and we show our feelings with our faces and my own doctoral dissertation from way back when was at what level do kids learn feelings? It was happy, sad, angry, scared. But what we now know is that two-year-olds mix up sad, angry, and scared. So mm. we keep talking and talking and talking about it. By the way, Gary, I don't know if you got a boy or a girl, but we talk feelings far more to our daughters at age two than we do to our sons at age two. I, I so, have a little boy, but uh, I have a wife who is extremely tuned in and, and very good at it and just just for clarity's sake he's a year and a half so he's not quite two yet Aww. so he's just just this past week he's getting to the yeses and nos as part of his lexicon and it's it's a lot of are you feeling are, are you are you tired no are you and then three minutes later are you tired yeah it's stuff Aww. like that so it's it's very cute but uh we're we're, we're very much in the throes of it but I'm I'm so jealous of what women do spontaneous. Even just what Michelle just did in response to your. I know. <laughs> did you hear I that? Know. that yeah. No, that's yeah. I, I, and then I, they do. They they're also much better with their face. Yes. You know. You notice that, right? Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. My yeah. wife is just naturally she she transforms. I have to force myself to do it. Right. And, well, and, here's another one you can do though, Gary, because these poor kids have been sitting there all day long looking at zooms, and we know empathy. 
needs face-to-face connection. Age two, you can make one rule. Always look at the color of the talker's eyes. Mm. And the kid actually starts looking up, looking at you, mirroring it. There's so many simple, simple little things. Obviously, it's going to take a long time to get to the, 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 the level where we sit and we lean in and we have those serious conversations. But it's all scaffolded with simple little beginning steps to help our kids learn these skills. Explain scaffolding so people get that concept. Ah, well, it's kind of the easier way to say that is a rubber band. Your goal is to keep stretching your child from where he is and higher and higher and higher levels without snapping them. Or as you're going up a ladder, it's like you take the first step of where are they at right now, but don't you go jumping three steps above or you're going to miss the steps in between and, and, of and, what the child is capable. And, and you're sort of there you know, with you know, scaffolding, put, building the scaffolding around the child. Or, 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 you know, and scaffolding, in, in my way of thinking about it, takes you know, this cognitive scaffolding, there's emotional scaffolding, there's physical scaffolding, and we, and we don't use all those different things enough. Right. That's what that's that I've read research that suggests that at least. Am I right on that? Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, I want you to check out Air Doctor. It's a professional quality air purifier with medical grade ultra HEPA filter that's been independently tested to remove over ninety nine point nine nine percent of tested bacteria and virus, plus virtually everything else, dust, pollen, mites, smoke. That's right. Powerful enough to circulate the air of a four hundred and fifty plus square foot room six times per hour. That's right. We're indoors a lot these days. Americans spend maybe 90% of their time indoors, according to the EPA. Indoor air can actually be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air. It's quiet. No need to worry about the noise. Air Doctor uses exclusive professional whisper jet fans. It really takes the guesswork out of clean air with its auto mode feature. uses a laser air sensor to detect air quality and automatically adjust the correct filtration level. Now, it's a professional quality HEPA air purifier. It's recommended by leading experts as an effective way to reduce airborne viruses and bacteria and protect your home, as well as allergens. Make sure you get an air doctor to keep you and your family safe. Air doctor comes with a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. If you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. Just go to airdoctorpro.com. Use the promo code Drew, and you'll receive a 35% discount. That's right, 35% off. But only if you go to airdoctorpro, A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code Drew. So, okay. So the seven teachable traits. Um, I'm uh, uh. See, I feel like perseverance and optimism – feel constitutional to me. How do you make those, how do you teach those things? Well, you start with self-control because it's real tough to have perseverance and stay focused when you don't have that ability. Okay, so, so hang on. There's something very important here. So, so there is an order to some of these things, right? There is an order to a couple of them. Okay. But other ones you can skip. And you also will discover that as you teach these skills, because you're going to look in the book and you're also going to see there's the seven traits. And then you're going to see the skill sets for each trait. But it's just like a kindergarten teacher or an English teacher in high school you got to have some of these preceding little skill sets to be right. able to turn them around okay, and keep that going. Okay, that makes perfect sense to me. It, uh, 
I, I find myself wanting to ask you uh, move away from the book a little bit. Do you mind? I know you've been talking sure, about absolutely. the book. Absolutely. How has COVID? What have you seen? How has it affected? Yeah. You know things like that. I'm sure people ask you these questions, and and I've got my own sort of experiences. Where what have you been seeing? Where are you at? What's where are we? Well, I think that the first of all. What I've seen is that parents are extraordinarily stressed and oh, burned boy. out. And oh, that, boy. That's for That sure. would be at the top of my yeah. concern level yeah. because we do know that our stress and our pessimism just mirror right down to our kids. So if there's a takeaway on how you teach all these skills, don't you dare teach the skill unless you're modeling it yourself. Or maybe it's just to stop and go, what are my kids seeing? When we look at, for instance, even way back when Anna Freud did a fabulous piece of research on World War II. Which kids did the best during World War II? It wasn't the kids that were taken away from the parents that went out to live in the in, down way back when in London. It was the kids who stayed with the parents. And if the parent was had less stress and was able to be optimistic, the parent, the kids seemed to fare quite well. Interesting. Remember that book, Life is Beautiful? That, that movie, I mean? Yes. Oh, yeah, was yeah. that beautiful? Yeah. Oh, let me cry again. That's this idea, right? <laughs> that's sort of this, yeah. yeah. Uh and the, the, do you share my concern? Well, I can make that concern sort of uh, explicit across multiple t- diagnostic sort of constructs. I, I worry about social phobia. Yep. Yeah, because we've told kids not only you know we've yep. g- taken them away from their opportunity to develop social skills, but we've told them you come near someone, you kill your grandmother, you kill your yep. grandmother, you, you kill your teacher. Exactly. Maybe you'll die. Uh, oh my God! <laughs> I mean, wh- what have we yeah, done? We're, we're finding that, in fact, my big concern of the red flag going up. I've been tracking the CDC reports, but also some really interesting stuff is happening with China uh, on their what they're seeing with their kids, and that happened a little bit before us. Yeah. So they're up to the level. What they're seeing is five to 11-year-olds, mm-hmm. it's really filtering down. Five to 11-year-olds are a far more anxious and fearful, exactly what you just said. And it's no big brain, you know, like, duh, but uh, yes, because it's filtering down. And then we get the 12 to 17-year-old pack. That was the APA said, watch out, because we are seeing, compared to last year, a 31% increase of ER visits for those kids of anxiety and depression and suicidology. So it does impact our kids. Back to who it's going to impact the most, uh, I'd say number one is proximity to the crisis. If your kid is watching grandma die in front of you, watching the home and daddy's business and mommy's stress levels go up, it's going to have a far greater impact. And do they have pre-existing coping skills, just like we know from resilience? How about just turning on the TV or looking at social yep. media? Oh, my so God, and see a daily death count every yeah. day. If yeah. you were a kid, what the heck would you do? It's like, wow, what a bother. That's what Alex, a, Alex Berenson calls in, team a, yeah. apocalypse. Team apocalypse yeah. or panic porn. Sheesh. Panic porn, okay. And then what are we also seeing? George Floyd's murder live. There's a lot of horrific stuff that they've seen. Who's made sense of it? You know, in the olden days, we could do something profound called turn off the TV. Yeah. Well, now you got a kid walking around with a cell phone who's seeing this stuff automatically. So the first takeaway is don't assume that your kid isn't seeing it and isn't being bothered by it. He may not be describing it, but somebody needs to process it for that child. And how, how you know it's uh, I've talked to a verifying uh, psychiatrist, child psychiatrist the other day, and I was asking her, What do you see? and she's like, Anxiety, depression, anxiety, depression, anxiety, depression, anxiety, yep. depression. That's all I'm seeing. Uh, but when you say process these things with and for the kid, what, what are we talking about? Well, what? I think first of all, is 
the takeaway of parents, they've always asking, what do I do? And I think the first thing is realize your kid is, is I'd say 90% of them are going to be impacted by it. Don't assume it's not my kid. Yeah. So it, once you become intentional and realize it, you can begin to do simple little beginning things of watch what the heck you say because your kids are filtering it. You can realize what the research is saying on that those graphic images on the news that are happening. I mean, even the reporter says, beware, the next things are going to be highly yeah, graphic right. and we'll, impact, well they, then turn just, it off. They just lean in is when they hear that. Lean in. <laughs> uh, but But do a couple of things. And we do know from Optimism, work on it. It's going to be a range of what helps each kid. Yeah. For some kids who are your little health and science buffs, uh, we do know from past work on trauma that that child can actually be helped by putting a crisis in perspective. And not all kids, but for some kids. So that would may mean, okay, then let's start looking at the Spanish flu. Let's look at what happened in smallpox. Let's look what happened in, in Ebola. They did do similar kinds of, of things like us, but in the end, they got through it because of, then you can talk about scientists. I, I would think most kids, I, I'm sure some respond more than others, but I would think most kids would it would help them. At least yeah, certain, I, certainly that 12 to, 12 to 17 group, for sure. Well, I wouldn't try it with the little one. But you know what? You're right. It's like, and the little one, here's what we can do for the little one. Because you mentioned social phobia. Uh, you mentioned anxiety, which is huge right now. Huge. But but why not? Because you're scared to death of what's going to happen. So you do the crunch the fear strategy. And that is, remember, when your kid's scared to death of water, you don't throw them into the deep end. Instead, you put your toe in and then you put your knee in. Well, you do the same thing with a fear. You don't try to talk the kid out of it because it's real. But you say, OK, if you're scared to death of the virus, thank you for sharing that. Let's open the window today and see what happens. So it's ex- exp- exposure therapy. Yep. Exposure, exposure therapy, therapy is is slow, consistent, but I think what people sometimes miss is you have to also be present with your child as they process. That's again, they're going to have emotions. Yep. You be there with them. Don't don't tell them they're yep. being silly. Don't tell them to stop. Let them have their feelings so they learn to manage them as the exposure expands. Yep, and walk. To, finally, you're walking together with the mailbox, so you're going. We're both okay. Yeah, because so often they mirror us, and that's what seems to be the big issue here. Yeah. Yeah, you said don't yeah. say not my kid, which is one of the scariest things I ever hear parents say in regards yeah. to anything. <laughs> of course, it could be your kid. It could be anybody's kid. Yeah. Look, we're looking at one in four kids with a mental health disorder. Right. That's going to be. Chances are, it's going to be your family. That's right. Do you worry about the? cognitive issues of being out of school all this time. I guess it's in the at-risk kids that those are the ones that are going to suffer the most, of course. Um, do you, Does that a concern or is it? Uh, it is a concern, but it's not the top of my list right, concern. Right, me neither. Yeah. Because uh, I think what happens is, yeah, I, what everybody needs to get a handle on is the cognitive capacities of kids, meaning the ability to tune in, focus, and do those worksheets for a long time. When you can't focus and you're anxious, that's the first thing that's going to go is your your ability to have an attention span because you're worried about other stuff. So uh, that too will come, and I think we're going to get that together. But I just talked to a, a fabulous uh, principal who did an op-ed that said the most important thing that educators better be doing right now is preparing kids when the doors open up because a lot of kids are coming in new. They've been who knows what they've been doing through. I always tell Teachers, the most critical thing you can do right now is send an email that's a personal one to every parent said, tell me 
what the most important thing that your child has endured during COVID that would help me step into your kid's shoes to help them. I don't know what your child has experienced. Help me so we can work together. I'm fearful that a lot of parents don't really know what their kids have been experiencing. Uh, Well, at least they can say, you know, we lost our business. Yeah, yeah. I've been through a lot of stress myself or her grandmother died. You're right. So it's getting through at least the beginning stages of that so we can get on the same page together. I really feel like when we look back at this whole year, the the school closure will be the single greatest misadventure of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm afraid, and and uh, and I've looked at other countries and what they've done, and even the most severe lockdowns, I couldn't find any country that locked from locked schools for more than two months because they are mm-hmm. essential. They are essential, and we're treating them like they're sort of incidental. It's really kind of crazy. I, and I and by the way, when they decided to close, I. Remember, I was sitting, I was talking to a school board member here in Los Angeles. I said, did, did the CDC tell you to do this? Did some clinician make this call? Oh, no, no. It's just the right thing to do. It's like, I, I don't think so. I, I, there's no oh. reason for it. And that was the that was where it all started. You know what? And that's a really interesting point because when everybody right now, you back to the cognitive capacities of all they're losing. But what else are kids losing because those school doors are closing? Mm-hmm. Routines and rituals. That teacher who's standing at the door and greeting them every day. Practicing your social skills of having somebody say, hello, how are you? Hearing the music, playing with the recess. All of that is part of our kids' MO. And they're craving those those connection things. I I guess we we never really realized how critical empathy was or togetherness was. Even the Surgeon General, I love his book, Together. I think that's a powerful thing of why we're all suffering from such mental health is we underrated just being in tune with another person. I 100% agree. And I'm I'm one of the reasons we're seeing the addiction go nuts. The, the Zoom yep. meetings are good, but they don't sustain long enough. They, they, you got to have in-person togetherness. Uh, do you have any concerns? I talked to an educator recently that was still very concerned about how males are being marginalized. Any concern about how we educate or approaching our males versus our female children? Oh, I have concerns all across the board. <laughs> sure, I'm sure. <laughs> it's like, I think the, the uh, my big element right now that I'm extremely concerned about is the equity divide. It's like huge. Yeah, it's gotten um, worse. It's, it's gotten, so bad. Yeah. And I worry about kids on the uh, the lower spectrum here that are in the poverty level. Yeah. Who's reached those kids? Because so many parents are going to be able to supply but we've got a lot of kids who just needed that contact. Heavens, just a lunch they needed. Just um, how are you doing connection? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're going to find for, uh, unfortunately, I hate to be the, the naysayer of the group, but I think this is going to have long-term ramifications. Oh, my God, yes. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. Uh, that's why I said this will be the great misadventure of this whole experience. And, of course, the people that are most at risk are the ones that are going to suffer the greatest. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, th- that's – uh, why we're not planning for that, I, I don't understand, but okay. Well, it's- look at the other thing that we've done. Uh, and I, wonderful things that many parents are doing is creating learning pods, which mm-hmm. are wonderful. So mm-hmm. they're getting the fastest IKEA furniture outside, hiring a tutor, getting kids together, coming in, and that's wonderful. Yeah. Look at all the kids who aren't invited to the learning pod. It's yeah. like schoolyard bullying has gone right down to our own backyard. Yeah. Parents, if you're listening to this, man, open up your doors and say, who's being overlooked? Because kids are craving. I think there's so many affect-hungry kids right now 
that need us. And we've got to be the village that opens it up and says, I'm here for you. Affect hungry. Hungry for a, a closeness, attachment? Attachment, attention. a love or feeling safe and enough and just there. Loneliness is just centered in and it's just a crave that we all need. You're going to be busy for a while, Michelle. Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid so. Afraid Thanks. so. Yeah. I, uh, although, there, I, I've, you know, you, it's funny that optimism is one of your seven uh, traits. I, I, I cannot shake my optimism, even when things are looking pretty bad. And I just feel like we'll learn something from all of this. Yeah, and, and I'm with it, you. And the, and hopefully people will reprioritize. And while it could certainly injure and harm plenty. If we do this right, we might be able to kind of pull them through. It's going to be an effort, and hopefully we won't do this again, and we'll reorient ourselves towards prioritizing these sorts of phenomenon you and I are talking about today. Oh, that's We are so in sync on that one. I, I hate to use the word silver lining when there's been such horror and death. Yeah. But there comes a point when an unprecedented moment says, so what are we going to learn from it? And if there's anything, I'm hoping parents hit a reset button. I hope schools hit a reset button that kids need more than the GPA and the test score. Yeah. Uh, because if it's not a pandemic, it's going to be something else down the pike. It's an extremely uncertain world. Let's talk a little bit about developing a cohesive sense of self, right, uh, and dovetail that into integrity. Okay. Because self, to me, self, of course, again, as we pointed out, emerges in the context of a relationship or multiple relationships, right? There's, if you, if I were a feral child, you know, if I got lost in the woods when I was six months old and came back at 14, I don't think I would have a much of a sense of self, and nor would I be yeah. able to regulate my emotions. Yeah. Uh, so the, the self emerges in the context of relationships. How can we help the kid get a cohesive, full sense of themselves. You'd mentioned identifying assets and you know, amplifying joy in certain activities. Is that all it takes? Uh, it's part of it. But the other part of it is we know that, back to that affect-hungry kid, the need to belong and connect is a universal need of a child. And now we've hit social distancing. We've, we've pulled that back. And we got to look at, I think, a really startling stat that was UCLA studies over 30 years has been tracking incoming college freshmen. And what they began to see was a very disturbing trend. They were smarter and smarter kids coming in, but they were lonelier and lonelier. Mm. They didn't know how to interact with each other. I just did a keynote prior to writing Thrivers and 2,500 college counselors said, they're different kind of kids prior to the pandemic. This was a year before, just last year, smartest on record, but they don't have the coping skills and they, many of them don't want roommates oh, yeah. because they don't know how to connect with each other. So I think part of that sense of self is parents saying, bring back the play date, bring back the sandbox, bring back of uh, schools have cut recess for heaven's sakes yeah. because we need more time for, for helping our kid learn how to take a test. And I think that's, and in reality, this, I think that's that kind of lack of physical release is disproportionately hurting males. I, I, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Hugely. Because the kid then comes in and he needed that relief. What do we look at? Look, I've spent a lot of time mind-boggling uh, going to university. Um, okay, Finland. Ministry of Education invited me three times to come work in Finland with the Ministry of Education. And every time I'd sit there with my mouth open. <laughs> they don't do formal training. 
their kindergartens are so sandbox oriented yeah. until age seven when they finally help their kids learning. Here's the real stuff on how to read. And, and then they then, then they add three languages. And then they become two things. Right. One of the happiest countries in the world and the most literate country in the That's world. So crazy. So what we do is we don't use the what works. We keep that backgrounded June Cleaver model from way back when, and we don't update ourselves. And what I'm trying to do is just in terms of thrivers is going, what's the science say yeah. that we may be overlooking? And it's not extraordinary stuff. It's no. just maybe we're missing the boat. And back to one thing that counts is that whole kid. And let, let's, and uh, that, to that yeah. point, to that point, let's finish out the self-concept with the integrity teaching. Well, the integrity teaching is the pivotal piece yeah. because, yeah, it's the mindset piece, but it's also who I am and what I stand for in terms of a stronger sense of self so I can operate wherever I am in the real world. When you have that integrity, it makes you move forward because, for heaven's sakes, doesn't the world need it? But on the other hand, it is a kid who has a, a wonderful piece of uh, that mindset of who I am. I, I tell you know sort of high school and college age kids that integrity helps them hear their instincts. If oh, they, if yeah. They're, if they're living according to what they believe and they're living consistently with that, they can kind of hear things a little better, you know, with it spontaneously come out of their body. Feelings. I love that because that goes right back to a resilience. Right. Right. I think the thing that, uh, you know, it's funny, one headmaster said they were, have, parents were trying to curate adversity for their kids so they could be, they could handle resilience. And it's like, you can't curate it. It's got to be ready when the kid ex- has the experience so he can hit it and going, I know a way around it. And that integrity piece that you just described of using your instincts, it's split second instincts. When we look at people who really are the survivors, it isn't that they've, they're learning coping skills in the heat of the moment. They've already had those or they've had that integrity. So now they can, they can keep that stress down and keep their heart open. That's what the Navy SEAL said. They can keep that arousal control down because they've been practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing. So when they finally hit the heat of the moment, they're ready for it. That's really interesting to me. That, that, I think that's something that, that parents lose track of. The other, the other part of that and the necessary part of the exposure and building resilience and being able to keep the arousal down is being able to understand, experience, and tolerate failure. Oh, that would be number five, number six. And that's what we do. We bubble-wrapped our kids uh, we've, and because we don't want them to fail and we want them to be happy. But we do know that resilient children have a sense of agency. They are kids who can, again, go, I got this. I don't need to depend on somebody because I've got the skill set to do it. Now, what does that mean? It means starting with Gary's two-year-old. <laughs> when they get to the three and the four-year-old, when they come crying in, you don't rescue them. You just sit and say, well, so what are we going to do next time? And we, we allow mistakes to be part of our home, but we also allow the kids to be able to rethink so they don't get stuck in the stumbler and they don't become that little mis- pes- you know, perfectionist when they use mistakes as learning opportunities. You got that, Gary? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think my household will have a good balance of that. Because well, I was going to say the other thing you've got it's got to be a pretty unified front. You got yeah. both of you doing it. Yeah, I think my wife and I are very much on the same page. But yeah. I've got a, a good dose of uh, someone who's got all the maternal instincts in the world and yeah. someone who's been shaped by Adam to be 
Oh, t- you were shaped by your mom. Trust well, that me, too. <laughs> so, that too. But it's it's a mix these days. I would say. <laughs> Adam Adam just put a little buffer around that. Well, Michelle, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Michelle. I, I'm just I'm gonna say back to Gary. We do that brilliantly when they're two. They fall down, and you go, yeah. "It's okay, yeah. get up," and we yeah. clap. Yeah. And then what happens along the way is the kid says, "The, the teens were telling me." The biggest concern I have is I don't want to disappoint my parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a normal instinct. I, exactly. I get that. Yeah, yeah but, it is. But we also need to let them know I love you no matter what. Exactly. Precisely. The book is Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. MichelleBorba.com. Michelle with one L, B-R-B-A. At Michelle Borba Twitter. At Dr. D-R. Michelle Borba on Instagram. And there are 23 other books or 24 other books? Can you One count? Yeah, it's, <laughs> no. it's a lot of other books you can read and learn from Michelle. You'll see her on a, a lot of the television outlets uh, all over the place. Anything coming up for you? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's been a wonderful book launch. Uh, now what I'm doing is taking up – yeah, actually, I'm doing Hong Kong, Manila, and Dubai. Oof. And it's fascinating because they're facing similar kinds of issues, but their kids are not facing the same social loneliness element. Because? Uh, they didn't lock down? I, uh, not as much. Interesting. And uh, and I think because they made it so that they're not so individualistic, we're all in this together. It was this collective mentality that helps the kid realize we're, that really we're strong together kind of a thing. Mm. So you can forge ahead. Interesting. Well, Michelle, as always, great to touch base with you. I love it. And uh, congratulations on the oh, book. And we will be together again soon, no doubt. I hope. Thank right. you. We'll see you all next time. For call-in times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Hey, movie lovers, who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. No signups, no fees, no contracts. Ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.